You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. It's very nice to be here. It's especially nice to be here. I don't know if this was in my bio or not, but I'm from Minnesota and it is literally 90 degrees warmer here than when I left and I might just stay. It is so nice. Thanks for coming out tonight. Thanks for being here. We're going to talk uh, at the beginning here a little bit about strong towns and about city development patterns before I hand it over to Joe. I want to start with this idea of a complex adaptive system. We all understand that rainforests are complex adaptive systems, right? Rainforest is made up of many different flora, fauna. They all act independently of each other. When we look at a rainforest, we see that it has a certain order to it, but that order is not an order that is imposed. It's an order that emerges from all these complex interactions. We can grasp the idea, and it's very simple to us, or very like logical to us, that a rainforest constitutes like a complex environment. But oftentimes we discount or we don't think about the idea of human habitat as also a complex adaptive environment. When we go back in history and we look at cities of, you know, 100 years ago, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, what we see is something that, again, a bunch of individuals came together, their interactions produced this order. But the order was not an order that was imposed from the top down. It was an order that arose and emerged from all these complex interactions. This is a a complex adaptive system. Complex and adaptive is different than a system that is merely complicated. A Rube Goldberg machine is very complicated, right? In fact, the fact that it's complicated is kind of the novelty of it, right? There's all this different stuff going on. But we all understand that if you cut one of these strings or move one of these blocks, the Rube Goldberg machine doesn't evolve and adapt. It doesn't become something different. It just what? It just breaks. It just stops working. We understand, you know, an automobile engine is a really complicated piece of machinery. There's a lot of stuff going on. It takes a very smart people to put an automobile engine together. But we recognize that if you stress an automobile engine beyond its capacity, it doesn't evolve and become a toaster or a wash machine. It will just break. It will cease to do what it's supposed to do. This is really the fundamental difference between systems that are complex and systems that are merely complicated. It's an internal ability to adapt, an internal fragility. When we look at a rainforest, we recognize that If we give a rainforest too much rain or too much sun in any one season, it's not going to collapse. It's not going to fail. It may adapt a little bit. Things may change. Different flora, different fauna may start to emerge in different ways. But if we look at a cornfield, which is really a complicated system designed to produce a sole outcome, corn, we recognize that if a cornfield gets too much rain or too much sun, it doesn't adapt and become soybeans. It doesn't adapt and become wheat. It just fails at what it's designed to do, which is to be corn. We see the same thing in human habitat. Uh, Human habitat used to be built from the bottom up, very emergent kind of order, individuals working kind of independently, uh, yet in collaboration with each other, emerging the system. Today, our development pattern is very different. The way we go about assembling our places is more mechanical. It's more machine-like. It's more top-down ordered 
And in many ways, it is also less adaptable and far more fragile than development patterns of the past. This is my hometown. This is Brainerd, Minnesota. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Brainerd. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Are you from Brainerd or just visited? Iowa. Oh. <laughs> uh, from Iowa. Very nice. You know how you have friendly rivalries with all your neighbors? I'm sure you all hate Georgia for some abstract reason. That makes no sense to me. You know, I love Iowa. Uh, <laughs> what, what is the old saying? Like, me and, my, me and my brother against my cousin, me and my cousin against the stranger, me and the, you know, it's like the, so Iowa, like here in Florida, we're brethren. Back home, we would be rivals, right? <laughs> this is Brainerd, Minnesota. It's about two hours north of Minneapolis, St. Paul. This is what it looked like in 1871. So the year it was founded, this was a photo that was taken. And you can see here kind of the beginnings of a city. And, and, and the thing I want to point out to you about this photo is the fact that it is, there's nothing really novel about this. Every city in all of human history, prior to kind of our modern experiment in, in building cities, every city really pre-depression throughout all of human history began just like this. Some little pop-up shacks, some hopes and some dreams about the future, a few people making what we would call little bets on the future of a place. If we look at history, we see that there were thousands and thousands of these places built on this continent just like this, and a lot of them failed. They never got beyond this stage, right? What happens when a place like this fails? Does the stock market crash? Do we have, you know, massive amounts of unemployment? Do we need the Federal Reserve to come and rescue cities? Of course not. These are little bets. A few people lose a little bit of money. They salvage what they can. They move on to the next place. But a lot of these places were successful. For whatever reason, all those complex variables came together and made a place that could endure. And you would see then the cities start to grow. Cities like this, again, for thousands of years around the world, would grow in a very specific way. They would grow incrementally up, they would grow incrementally out, and they would become incrementally more intense. They would thicken up over time. What would happen is that as more and more people would move to the place, the place itself, the actual land, would become more valuable. That rising value of land combined with these little shacks starting to fall apart would create this natural redevelopment pressure. And what you would see over time is that a little street like this would become a street like this. This is the same exact street from a similar location 34 years later. And over time, as more and more people would move to this place, the land values would go up. There would be this natural redevelopment pressure. And you would see these two and three story wood structures ultimately be replaced by buildings of brick and granite. This is a development pattern, again, that we see all over the world for thousands and thousands of years. Cities growing incrementally up, growing incrementally out, and then thickening up, becoming incrementally more intense. At the end of World War II, we kind of put into hyperdrive a development pattern that we have been experimenting with in different ways for a couple of decades. Before I talk about that development pattern, I'm going to show you a photo. This is the exact same street from roughly where this photo was taken. Here's what this street looks like today. And you'll notice the lack of buildings, right? You'll notice the lack of structures. This is a, a street with essentially a bunch of empty warehouses and vacant parking lots. Here's what I want you to take away from this before we talk about how this happened. I'm a civil engineer. 
when I look at this street, what I see is a half million dollars of public investment in the pavement, in the sidewalk, in the street lights, in the storm sewer, in the sewer system, the water system. I see a half million dollar public investment with no wealth, no community wealth to actually sustain that investment. If we go back in time and we look at this street in prior uh, iterations, the wealth was there, right? Our ancestors, and I say that in the broadest sense of the world, when they built places, they, they emerged but they emerged in a platform that was financially strong and viable. When we look at this today, what we see is that this is, a, this is a street that is bankrupting us. A massive collective investment that my community has made that is having no return. How did this happen? And, you know, I wrote a whole book, a big portion of this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the Cliff Notes version, a very quick version of this. But I want you to put your mind in in the mindset of someone who grew up during the Great Depression. My grandfather grew up during the Great Depression. My parents live on the old Marone homestead. where That's where I grew up, the original Marone family farm homesteaded in the late 1800s. That's where my grandfather grew up. But it wasn't owned by the Marones, and it was owned by a different family. He uh, was allowed to live there for a couple years during the Great Depression. They allowed him to sleep in the barn. Again, this is Minnesota. Uh, he could sleep in the barn and they would feed him and then he worked the farm. That's what he did. And I remember my grandfather when he was alive telling me that he felt really lucky to be able to do that. Uh, this was a guy who was a Marine in World War II. He was one of the first troops into Nagasaki. Clearly not a wimp, right? He told me he felt very fortunate to this. I've tried to relate to that and understand how difficult the Great Depression was. You know, we had our long recession, or we had our recession in 2008, the housing crisis. We've had kind of this malaise of an economy since then with these crazy bubbles and booms and what have you. There are comparisons made to the Great Depression, but when you actually study and talk to people who were there, the depths of the anxiety and stress of the Great Depression is something that I think we have a hard time relating to today. Of course, we got out of the Great Depression by what? Yes, that's what we're taught in middle school, right? The thing that got us out of the Great Depression was World War II. As if like, yay, we're in depression, let's start a war, right? Like that's not how it went. But if you were a bean counter in Washington, D.C., what you saw is that the idea that we could mobilize millions of working age people, ship them off overseas to kill and to die, to take millions of more people and draft them into the industries of war, building the ships, the planes, the munitions, all the stuff that we would need. If you were a bean counter in Wall Street or in Washington, D.C., what you saw is that, okay, now all of a sudden we're not in depression anymore. The economy is growing. If you were a regular person and you had people, you know, you were either fighting or had people you loved fighting, you were rationing your gasoline, rationing your butter, rationing your sugar. This was not prosperity. But in terms of like GDP growth, the economists say, now we're out of depression. As the war started to wind down, it became obvious after a while that we were going to win. In World War I, it was really a question of who would win until the end. But in World War II, it became obvious that Normandy and what have you, that, that we were just in a, a grinding out conflict, that the Allies were ultimately going to prevail. The economists around FDR started to panic. And there's some really interesting quotes where they, you know, would tell the, the president at the time, 
If this war ends, we are screwed. If we bring millions of people home and we shut down all these industries and we do all this stuff, we're just going to go right back into 1935. There is nothing different about our economy right now than it was five years ago. We're going to go right back into the Great Depression. Everybody in this room knows that that's not what happened, right? Everyone in this room knows what actually took place when those troops came home. I think it's important, though, to put it in this context. What we did is we took our capacity and we poured it into building a new version of America. We took our industrial might. We were literally like the world's, you know, currency. We, we had we had all the gold. We had everybody's gold from two wars. We were the only industrial power not decimated by war. We had a culture kind of united against common enemies. We took all this capacity and we poured it into creating a new version of America. And all of you know the marketing brochure for this new version of America, right? Middle-class families, blue-collar jobs, two kids, a dog, your own little part of America. Right? We, we all get that. It's, it's, it's what we personify today as the American dream. And the idea was, if we could, from the top down, pour our resources into this project, whether it was by the GI Bill or whether it was by creating Fannie and Freddie and all these 30-year mortgage products, whether it was creating a secondary market for housing, investing in infrastructure, investing in an interstate highway system, we were going to do what it took to stay out of the Great Depression and grow our economy. And the amazing thing is that it worked, right? It worked. We look back today as those couple of decades after World War II, the greatest generation, right? It was the, the, the time when, I'm gonna say something now, and if you know you're a partisan person to kind of suppress that partisanship, because I'm gonna say something now and I don't mean this to be a partisan statement. We so nostalgize this period of time. If you go back to like the 2016 election, Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, I don't know what you heard, but here's what I heard. I heard two septuagenarians, two people who are looking back at the best decade or two of their life and selling that to us. One vision was Ozzie inherit families and blue collar jobs, right? One vision was a federal government that could be very generous and very expansive because the country was growing. We were becoming more affluent. We could do things like expand Social Security, expand Medicare, you know, create a more vibrant social safety net. There were two politicians selling a vision of the past that they wanted to recreate today, but we're in a very different place. This system worked, though, and it worked for a long time, and I want to show you what I mean by working because the idea was to create enough growth to keep us out of the Great Depression. And, and this is a map of Fresno, California. I know we're a long ways from Fresno, but you will recognize Orlando, you will recognize other places in this. I show a map from Fresno because it's a really cool map, but it literally could be any city. I'm gonna show you the way that Fresno grew over time. That little yellow part in the middle was the extent of the city limits of Fresno in 1897. Now, watch as this complex adaptive system grows incrementally over time, right? Incrementally up, incrementally out, incrementally thicken it up. That adaptable, flexible, strong, financially stable pattern of development. 1897, now you go to 1909. Now we're gonna to go to 1922. 
Now we're in the middle of the Great Depression. And you can see that when we get to the end of World War II, we've got a bigger city. We've experienced growth, but it's been growth in this like traditional pattern, growth that comes with it a certain amount of resiliency, a certain amount of adaptability. In a sense, you exchange a faster growth rate for insurance, for more stability, for more adaptability. You, you give up growth in order to have that internal stability. Now, we wanna stay out of the depression. From the top down, we're gonna engineer a system that is going to turn our cities into growth machines. Literally like machines that produce growth for the economy. And here's what happens. Um, the end of World War II, now we're in 1958. And we're in 1970, 1983, 1995, 2010. And we're all familiar with this pattern, right? Like we've all seen this happen in cities all over the country. There's a massive, massive amount of growth. We just got done passing a 1.2 trillion or something infrastructure bill, right? And how is that infrastructure bill sold to us? We are going to invest in infrastructure and that is going to create growth, right? It's gonna create growth. And here's the thing about this. It is really, really easy is an easy formula. We invest in infrastructure, and on the other end of that, we get GDP growth. That is the macro story. What I want you to ponder now is the micro story, the local story, the city story. And, and let me just be clear what I mean when I say city. A lot of times we look at local governments in like this hierarchy of governments. You've got your federal government, you've got your state government, you've got your regional government, and then you've got your local governments, and it's like algae in a system of government, right? That's not how I look at local government. When I talk about cities, when I talk about local government, I'm talking about the highest form of collaboration in a community. How do we all work together to do things here? I wanna show you this growth story, but from the perspective of a city. Joe, who's gonna come up next, the team at Urban3 and I were lucky enough to spend some time in Lafayette, Louisiana doing what at the time, and I, I, this may still be true, but at the time it was the most detailed financial analysis of a city that I, I think has ever been done geographically. One of the things we got a hold of was a, a really good map of their water system. And it gave us some data that is just very revealing of the story that I want to share with you. In Lafayette, Louisiana, at the end of World War II, their population was a little over 33,000. Today, it's over 120,000, so a three and a half times increase. They have experienced, like Fresno, an enormous amount of growth, right? Very high growth rate. But if we go back to the end of World War II, what we see is that it took five feet of pipe per person to provide water to the people of Lafayette. Today, it takes 10 times that. It takes 50 feet of pipe per person to provide water to the people of Lafayette. You can look at their fire protection system. At the end of World War II, remember, at the end of that complex adaptive type of development pattern, it took 2.4 hydrants per thousand people to provide fire protection for the city of Lafayette, Louisiana. Today it takes over 21 times that amount. And so Lafayette has been able to experience a lot of growth. They've been able to experience a, a lot of macro growth, a lot of new people, a lot of new stuff, a lot of new tax base. But in order to do that, they have taken on an increasing amount of liability. The actual amount of stuff that every resident of Lafayette 
is responsible for maintaining and taking care of has gone up dramatically as a trade-off of that growth pattern. Now, we can look back and say, well, okay, Chuck, I get it. Like, that makes a lot of sense. But we're so much better off today. I remember what it was like at the end of World War II. People lived in little houses. They didn't drive as much. We've got two cars now. Uh, we've got a higher standard of living. We've got a bigger house. I agree. We've had a lot of growth. We've got a lot of stuff. But if we look at a city like Lafayette, what we see is it's very easy for them to grow their population by three and a half times if they take on you know, 10x and 20x the liabilities. But when you actually say, are the people there better off? We can look at things like their median household income and see that it's only gone up a tiny fraction of that. We can look at family net worth and see that it's actually gone down over the last four decades for the median family. We are growing a lot. We are not becoming wealthier. We are not becoming more prosperous. There's some ways to understand this from a community standpoint, from a city standpoint, from a local government standpoint. And I'm going to give you uh, now a, a couple examples of developments that I've worked on where we've gone back and, and done the math. Th this is a very simple development. This is a dead-end cul-de-sac. It's kind of the, uh, the quintessential simple suburban style of development, right? Just a simple road, some homes along it. No through traffic, no commercial traffic, nothing that's ever going to impact this. It's just build it, it's done, world without end, right, for the Catholics in the back. When this road was built, the city said we would like it paved. And we, as the city, will pay half the cost if you, the property owners, pay the other half. That worked out to $6,600 per property. We could look and see exactly how much taxes are being paid by everybody on this cul-de-sac. And we asked the question, how long is it going to take the city to recoup their half of that investment? The answer is that it's 37 years. Now, it's 37 years that it was going to take for them to get their money back. Who was going to plow the snow? Who was going to fix the potholes? Who was going to fill the cracks? And more importantly, when that road falls apart, who's going to go out and pay for that? Because at that point, it's now 100% the city's responsibility because the community took over the long-term maintenance of that roadway. Here's another development. This one was built and paid for, uh, quote-unquote, entirely by the developer. You all have impact fees that do the same kind of thing. I know it's changed in recent years, but it's the idea that we could get the first life cycle of this development pattern paid for. So the developer came in, paid to put in all the sewer and the water and the storm sewer and the road. Of course, that wasn't free. That wasn't a gift. That cost was included in the sale price of the homes. People bought the homes. They've been paying their taxes for decades. Their taxes in order to have the city maintain that roadway, maintain that infrastructure. At the same time, they've been paying their mortgage. So they've essentially been paying for that physical infrastructure through their monthly mortgage payment. The road completely fell apart. The city went out to fix it. The cost uh, to do that was 354000 We asked the question, based on the amount of money the city's spending to fix this road, how long is it going to take them to recoup that from these property owners in this kind of dead-end style of development? There's no, again, no through traffic, no commercial traffic. The only reason there's a road there is because there's homes there, right? If there were no homes, there'd be no need for a road. The answer is 79 years. The road will never last 79 years. Like, that's insane. And so we asked the question, what would need to happen to tax rates in order to have the money 
25, 30 years from now, when the city had to go out and do another big road maintenance project, what would it take in order to have the money to be able to fix that road? It would mean an immediate 46% increase in taxes with annual increases of 3% over inflation every year indefinitely and all of that money going just for the roadway. The sewer, the water, the storm sewer, these are like many multiples more expensive than the surface uh, roadway is. Now, sometimes people say, okay, Chuck, I get it. Our community loses money on residential development. We make it up on commercial. That's never made any sense to me. I don't know any corporation that loses money on like 80 to 90% of what it does and tries to make it up on the last 10%. I don't know why an incorporated municipality would think that was a good business strategy. Nonetheless, th there's this common meme that we hear from people that, well, we're just gonna get a bunch of commercial growth and then we'll be okay. This is a business park. This is one of those build it and they will come kind of investments. You go out and you put in the, the deep sewer and water, you put in the, the, the industrial sized streets and you invite businesses to come in and open up. Good tax base, high paying jobs, all that stuff. This one was built and two decades later was completely built out. And the city said, we were so successful with this project, we wanna build the same thing just right next door. So we're gonna take all this and we're just gonna repeat it, same thing. We said, great, this is a perfect analysis. If we did the same thing for the same amount of money and got the same amount of investment, would this be a good project? $2.1 million to build it. We can go look at the assessment rules. There's $6.6 .6 million of tax base in this park. Now, pause for a moment. Of the tax base that is out there, four of the lots belong to a church. Two of the lots belong to the school district. It's a bus maintenance building. One is a city maintenance building, one is a county maintenance building. None of these places pay any taxes to the city, right? They needed these facilities, they were easy lots to get, we already had built the infrastructure, go ahead. Of the remaining lots, the ones that theoretically were private sector taxpayers, every single one was given a tax subsidy in order to attract that investment into the park. Some type of tax deferment or some type of, of tax, you know, repayment type of process of varying years, five years, seven years, one was 15 years. We ran the numbers on this every way and we couldn't even pay the interest on the bond. The only way we could come close is to assume that every lot in the new development was completely built out within one year of the new park being put in and that everyone who built in there was a full tax paying, non-subsidized entity and that every penny of taxes went to paying off that debt. That means that everybody else's taxes would need to go up to provide the police protection, the fire protection, the street maintenance, and all the stuff that's needed out there. And that was in the most wildly optimistic scenario. I'm gonna finish up here with three charts and I'm gonna apologize in advance. I'm an engineer. Part of my licensing requirement is that I show charts. There's three charts in this presentation. I'll walk you through them. They will not be painful. Um, but if you're not a chart person, Close your eyes and listen to the narrative because I, I think it will, it will be just as clarifying. This is a cash flow diagram. Let's say that we have a developer who's come to our community, wants to build on a lot. They say, you know, I, I really like it here. I'm going to go build this development. Um, as part of this transaction, I will, out of my pocket, pay for the road, pay for the sidewalks, pay for the sewer and the water and the storm sewer. 
I will build all of the homes. I'll build all the commercial businesses. I'm not asking for any subsidies. I'm not asking for any handouts. I'm not asking for any variances from your rules. The only thing that I'm asking as a developer is that once I get done making this investment in your community, that you, the local government, the representative of the people in this place, that you agree to take over the long-term responsibility to provide service and maintenance to this new development. What would we say? No. Oh, no, we would not say no. We would jump up and down, right? No. You're following all of our rules. You're following all of our regulations. You're paying for everything yourself. There's no money for us up front. I don't know a city in America that would not jump on that. And I know many that would not be allowed to say no because of the way their laws are written. Right? If you come in the door and you meet all the rules, what's your basis for denying that application? We would jump up and down. But let's say we're very smart people, we're very prudent people. We've heard of this strong town stuff, we wanna do the right thing. So when the money comes in from this new development, money we weren't expecting, anticipating, we're gonna, we're gonna take that portion that would normally go to, to maintenance of stuff and we're gonna set it aside. And every year when the money comes in, we're gonna take that portion, we're gonna set it aside and we're gonna allow it to accumulate to the day when we've got to make good on this promise we're making that we will go out and fix and repair stuff. This is what that looks like. I don't have my highlighter, but you're just gonna have to, in year one, you can see that, you know, the development pays in a little bit of money, you, you set that aside. In year two, you add to what you had in year one. In three, you add a little bit more. In year four, a little bit more, and on and on and on. And you can see a five-year-old road isn't costing you anything, a 10-year-old, sidewalk isn't costing you anything. A 15-year-old pipe isn't costing you anything. And so year after year after year, you've got no money going out, all this money coming in. And you get a couple of decades out and you're feeling very, very rich, right? You have this big pot of money and you haven't really had to spend it. But then when you get to, in this example, year 25, and you have to go out and make good on that promise, that promise that was made two and a half decades ago, what you find is that the cumulative amount of money is insufficient. And from a cash flow standpoint, you run far into the negative. Now, cities aren't one development, right? Cities are a, a collection of developments, like a series of neighborhoods, right? So let's say that our developer, you know, does that first development, comes back in a couple years later and says, you know what? That worked out really well for me. It worked really well for you. I would like to do this same project again. And every other year from this point forward, developer walks in the door with the same kind of project. In other words, the ideal scenario for any community, nice, steady, continuous growth. And we take this money and we set it aside and we save it for the day when we have to start making good on all these promises. This is what that looks like. In year one, you've got your first project comes online, it pays taxes the entire 25 years shown here. Year three, you add another, year five, year seven, and you can see not only are we having uh, no costs at this point because everything is brand new, everything is new in infrastructure terms, it's very new, but we're having growth upon growth upon growth. Our cash actually starts to accelerate upwards. We're feeling very, very rich. And when we have that payment we have to do in year 25 when we have to make good on that very first development yeah we got to spend a little bit of money but it's not a big deal we've had all this growth the growth creates what we call the illusion of wealth 
Because as we all intuitively understand, if you lose money on every project you do, you don't make it up in volume. If you lose money over time on the way you're growing and building, the further you go out in time, the more downward pressure there is on your budget. This is why a great city like this that has experienced all kinds of growth has this huge backlog of maintenance liabilities. How is that possible in one of the richest, the richest country in the world and one of the wealthiest parts of that country? And I, I, I'm sorry if that rubs you the wrong way, but you all are very affluent, comparatively speaking, to the rest of the country. How does that happen? It happens like this slowly over time. We can grow the macroeconomy. We can hit next quarter's GDP figure. We can pump all kinds of stimulus in the economy. We can do all kinds of things to make our economy grow. If we're willing to sacrifice the financial solvency and security of our local communities. We actually need to shift our development pattern and shift it to something dramatically different, something that actually builds our wealth and capacity instead of slowly seeps it away. And before I turn this over to Joe, I'm going to give you this last little insight. I'm going to throw this out there because it is very far distant from the way most people think about development, but I want to give you a little bit of insight into the Strong Towns approach. I said we just passed this $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. We did. It's kind of ironic because there's this sense that everybody's going to get inundated now with infrastructure dollars. There's going to be this huge windfall. I don't know if you know this, but the president's plan, again, not a partisan statement, the president's plan identified 178,000 miles of roadway that was in bad condition. The plan that was approved, or the plan that he proposed, would fund 12% of the backlog. So the, the big backlog of maintenance would fund 12% of it over the next decade. What that means in practical terms is that we will have more highways a decade from now after passing the largest infrastructure bill in history. We will have more roads in bad condition a decade from now than we have today. And by the way, I said it was the president's bill. What was passed was a bipartisan compromise that was actually whittled down that bill. There's no rescue coming from Tallahassee. There's no rescue coming from Washington, D.C. We have to do this on our own. And that means we're going to have to make investments in a way different way. At Strong Towns, we've come up with a strategy to make the lowest risk, highest returning investments that we can make in a community. I'm going to share this with you a little bit out of context. I usually talk for another half hour and then do this slide. I'm going to do it now, and then I'm going to hand the hot potato over to Joe to show you some other stuff. But I want to go through this with you because I want you to start thinking differently about how we make great investments. Step number one of our process, go out and humbly observe where people struggle. Where do people have a difficult time using the city as it has been built? Remember, we're trying to switch from a system that is complicated to one that is complex, to one that is built and finished and, and runs like a machine, to one that is adaptive and responsive to us. So we go out and we observe, where are people having a difficult time using this machine as it has been built? Step number two then, ask the question, what is the next smallest thing we can do right now to address that struggle. 
resist the idea that there's some big, you know, grant we can get from state capital, there's some program we can plug into from Washington, D.C. What is the thing that we can do, we as a community, with the resources that we have? What's the next smallest thing we can do? Discipline ourselves to take that small incremental step. Step number three then, go out and do that thing. Do that thing right now. Don't study it for six months. Don't hire a consultant. Don't send it to a committee. It's a small little investment. Go out and do that. And then step number four is to repeat that process over and over and over. The great urbanist Jane Jacobs called cities co-creations, things we build together. And it's particularly difficult to share this message sometimes in places that are affluent and growing because we have gotten used to the city as being something that we pay our taxes to and then have delivered to us. If we want the city to be prosperous, if we want the community to be prosperous, we're going to have to get back to this idea of co-creation, of building together. And your role in this, as much as the community's, the city government's role, is to exist in this space, to have these modest investments being made in your neighborhoods, to allow them to, to change, to adapt, to flex over time, so that they can become stronger, they can become more productive, they can become better places to live. I'm going to pause there, and I'm going to hand things over to my friend Joe, who's going to come up and, and switch uh, projectors on us. Um, if you're interested in Strong Towns or Strong Towns Message, uh, you can go to our website, strongtowns.org. Uh, our organization began as a blog. Today we have uh, three different articles we publish every day. Uh, we do three different podcast streams. Uh, we're just doing everything we can to try to get this message out. And I always tell people, if you go on our website and there's something that seems like, oh, that's really smart, I really like it, I wish other people knew about this, you can copy and paste it and put your name on it and pretend you wrote it. That's perfectly fine with us. All of our stuff is Creative Commons license. We are trying really hard to get this message out to as many people as we can because it's going to take a bottom-up revolution for us to make our cities strong and viable. Thank you, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.